Okay. Well, we uh, were two or three weeks now into a sermon series on 1 Corinthians. And uh, we've kind of gotten stuck in chapter one here. <laughs> we're going to be stuck again, I'm afraid. Um, hear God's word to us this morning from 1 Corinthians verses uh, 18. Um, to the end of the chapter. I will pick up in chapter 2 fresh next week. So, uh, hear God's word to us. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the wise one? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God made... Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. And to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, and not many were powerful. Not many of you, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing to things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God, and because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The word of the Lord. God, we give you thanks for the word of the cross, for the folly of it in its ability and capacity to save us. Lord, this morning I pray that you would give us a sense of how the cross, as you give it to us, as you save us, is meant to reshape our hearts, our imagination, our thinking, the way we organize and think of ourselves in community. Lord, wherever we find ourselves in relationship to you, um, our relationship with your body, the church, plays a critical and important role that I think sometimes we are, we overlook. Lord, you give us your body, the church, to be in relationship with you. And so this morning, Lord, I pray for all of us in our relationship to this body, not just to you, Lord, but to this body, that you would meet us where we're at, that you would draw us deeper into the center, which is Christ. And, but in doing that, draw us deeper uh, to one another. Lord, we give you thanks for your word, and so we pray that you would be with us and teach us this morning by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So from one perspective, uh, the, all the conflict and the division within a church, conflict and division within a church, as I talked about last week is a, is a sign of the worldliness of a church. A divided church is a worldly church, and I think that is true of the Corinthian church. 
But from another perspective, that's true at the same time, the conflict and division within a church is oftentimes a sign of spiritual vitality and cultural engagement. And I think this is also true of the Corinthian church. It's a worldly church, but it's also a spiritually vital church. It's easy for us to have a very negative view of this church when you read through this whole letter and you see all the different problems that they're struggling with. Um, But one thing that you cannot say about this church is that they are spiritually dead. (laughs) They are not a spiritually dead church. They are the very opposite of a spiritually dead church. They are very much alive. And it's very clear when you read this letter that you get a sense of a people with incredible spiritual intensity and passion and vitality. The fundamental problem of the Corinthian church was not a lack of devotion or commitment. It was immaturity. They were a young church. And I think it's important to keep in mind that when Paul is writing this letter, he was the church planner, if you will. And this church is probably around five years old. Five years old. And so, yeah, all the divisions with the church are definitely reflect a worldliness of that. But what can you expect? What would you expect? Conflict and struggle within a body is a natural byproduct of being a young congregation in a multicultural and diverse pluralistic city like Corinth. And remember, Corinth is a city that's, that is, um, it is a crossroad of trade, of commerce, of religion and culture. And so it's not surprising that this young Christian community is really struggling to hold together all the diverse cultural tensions and find their, their, themselves in their center as a Christian community. The Corinthian church was a multicultural community that was trying to be one body, one community. And Paul's trying to help them figure out what that means. And see, multicultural um, includes multi-ethnic or multiracial but it also includes just diversity across socioeconomic boundaries, poor and rich and middle class, political sensibilities, cultural tastes and habits. And the question I think that Paul is helping them answer is, what makes possible a multicultural community? How do we, in our diversity of perspectives and experiences and stories and racial and ethnic backgrounds, How do we find unity and oneness? And and Paul's answer is very, very clear and to the point. It is the cross. It is the cross. The cross is the only thing that can hold us together. The cross applied to our social lives. The cross is the only possibility and foundation for being a truly diverse body that is nevertheless one. One of the signs of the gospel at work in a community and in a church community is that it calls people into community together with people who in other conditions by worldly standards they would normally have nothing to do with. And that, and actually in some cases they might seek to avoid. The gospel makes possible a kind of community that simply cannot exist without God. Now, it is possible to be a church community without the presence of God. Many churches do it. And in fact, I would argue that every church struggles <laughs> to be, struggles to, be uh, to function without God at the center. 
We're always tempted to find our functional center, the real glue and stickiness of the community outside of the person of Jesus Christ. And I think there's all kinds of different alternative functional centers that tempt churches to be the glue of their community, right? Shared racial experience, shared socioeconomic sort of background, shared political sensibilities, cultural instincts. See, human nature is that like attracts like. This is a social law of human nature. We want to be with people who are like us, who understand us, who share our experiences. Um, We like the idea of multiculturalism. (laughs) We all feel like we need to do it more. But the reality is, it is really hard. It's really hard to do. It requires us to change as people, and that's a very difficult thing. See, having things in common is not necessarily a bad thing as a church. Having a, a predominant racial makeup isn't necessarily a bad thing. But here's the thing. These sort of natural things that we share in common, race or culture, politics, They are the basis of natural community, but they are not the basis of supernatural community. A gospel-centered community is one that as it grows, it begins to engage in mission and life together in ways that look increasingly cross-cultural and that push people outside of their comfort zones and their boundaries. A gospel-centered church is one that has a life and community that simply cannot exist and be sustained by worldly standards. A gospel-centered community is one that can exist only because of God. Now, to do this, it's not enough simply to claim Christ as the center. Christ as the center is enough. All churches, we're going to say we're a Christ-centered church, even those who are deeply divided. It's not simply Christ as the center. It's Christ crucified as the center. It's Christ crucified as the center. Christ crucified is the only thing that can unify a church in oneness while maintaining all the diversity of our experiences and expressions. And the cross, as Paul wants us to know, is a summons to social discipleship. The cross is a summons to social discipleship. Now, as modern people, our categories, when we hear Jesus say, pick up your cross and follow me, we think in very individualistic terms about this. We think about the cross as me dying to my private and personal desires and wants. Very seldom do we think about picking up the cross as me dying to my social status, to my racial status, to my cultural sensibilities, to my political orientation, to my political memberships and nationality. And yet all these aspects are part of what it means to our identity and who we are. And all of these things need to be brought to the foot of the cross so that Jesus can redeem them and sanctify them. Jesus calls us to social discipleship, and he wants to sanctify every aspect of what makes us us. And those are social things. So, how does this work? How does Paul apply the cross to our social life, to our social situation? Um, It's a little bit of review, but... The first thing that Paul does for the Corinthians as he seeks to address their divisions is to reframe them. He seeks to redress or to reframe the divisions within the body with an even greater division. 
See, Paul writes to them, he calls them to unity, but he doesn't say, okay, you guys just need to get along, right? Set aside your petty differences. Rather, what he does is he sets before them the greatest division of all, which is the contrast between the wisdom of this world and the foolishness of the cross. And he gives it to them in the sharpest possible terms. The cross creates a fundamental dividing line in human history between two ages and two groups of people. There is the old age, which is perishing and which is passing away, and those who belong to that age themselves are perishing. And that there is the new age, which is coming, which the, the cross marks the beginning of. And those who belong to that age are being saved. This is the fundamental division that reshapes human history. And that all the other divisions, all the rest of our thinking, has to fit within this greater division. What Paul wants them to know is that this must structure your thinking. This must be how you reimagine the world. The way he wants them to know is this. All those divisions that you guys are squabbling about and fighting about, they belong to the old age. <laughs> and this age is perishing. This age is passing away. And someday all the things that you're so up in arms about and that you're so upset about that keep you from one another will be completely irrelevant. Completely irrelevant. Friends, is this not true of half the things we fight about as Americans? Masks, social distancing, how we deal with the pandemic, it's certainly important. Someday it'll be completely irrelevant. Politics, Republican, Democrat, completely irrelevant. Jesus wants us to reframe, reframe the way we think. The cross changes everything. We have to realize that all the things that we tend to fight about that in the light of the cross are rendered null and void. The cross changes all the fundamental storylines, all of them, all the fundamental storylines of history. Don't you see how the cross gives you a new story, a new narrative? Now, there's no such thing as unity without sharing a common story. That is fundamental. There's no such thing as unity without sharing a common story. All identity is grounded in narrative. Who we are as a people is based on the story, the stories we tell about ourselves. So if somebody asks you who you are, you, you have to tell a story. <laughs> you have to tell a story of who you are. You can't simply say, you know, I'm a human being uh, from Milwaukee. But even to say you're from Milwaukee is begin to tell a story, isn't it? Identity is grounded in story. And the problem with the Corinthians was that their old narratives, their old stories, were from the old age. And they were still the dominant storylines that controlled their thinking and their behaving and their imagining. And see, all these old storylines were always in conflict and clashing with one another in the world. And so it's not surprising that they're in conflict and clashing with them in the church. The Corinthians had a Christian story to be sure, but it was the subplot of the novel of their lives. It wasn't the main plot. It wasn't the main plot to which all the, the other stories were ordered. But what Paul wants us to know is this, and the way he describes the cross, he uses these very apocalyptic categories. The cross bursts into history 
and tears at the fabric of history. And all the stories of the old age come and they crash into the cross. They crash into the cross and they stumble. They stumble into the cross. See, the cross is a kind of story that cannot be assimilated to other stories. See, this is what it means for uh, the cross and Christ to become the subplot of your life rather than the main plot. We're always trying to sort of put, you know, the cross is, a, is just one of the chapters. It's a, it's a theme, but it's not the main plot. But Paul says it's all or nothing. The cross is all or it's nothing. It gets rejected as foolishness. But when the cross does become our collective story as individuals and as a, as a collective whole, as a body, it is a story that is large enough, comprehensive, Catholic enough for all of our personal stories to make sense for all of them to be woven and fitted together in a grand, beautiful, symphonic novel. The story of Christ crucified is the only story that can unify because it's the only story that's big enough for all the rest of our stories. Now, Paul wants the Corinthians to see how the story of the cross clashes with all their old age storylines that they're still very invested in and which they're basing their identities upon. But I think it's really important to recognize um, how hard it is for us to discern the storylines of our life, the stories from which we live. Um, It is possible to be convinced that Christ crucified is your storyline. I think most of us would say, yeah, Christ crucified. But the reality is this, is that there's all, sometimes there's all these other stories that are operating beneath the skin, beneath the the subtext of our lives that we're kind of acting out of, that we're living into, and we don't even realize it. It is possible, and this is always a temptation, for the cross to be merely a subplot in our lives, not the main plot. And so how do we discern? How do we discern which story we're living out of? Now, the real identifying marks of what storyline controls your life, what the narrative of your life is, is found in those things from which you draw your social worth. If you want to know what story you belong to, what story you're living out, look to those things in your life by which you draw your social worth, the things that give you meaning and purpose, the things that you hang your identity on. Christians... Our story is not based in the worldly narratives. And here's where Paul gets very, very personal with the Corinthians. And he reminds them of their social status. Let me remind you of what your story was in in the eyes of the world before you became Christian. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. Now, this is a very revealing statement of Paul's about the actual social makeup of the congregation. This is not a congregation of high-status people. This is not a congregation filled with wealthy, well-educated, sophisticated people, influential people. Now, that's not to say that there weren't educated, you know, highly educated, wealthy people. He says, not many of you, not, not, he doesn't say not any of you, right? I mean, there, it's very clear that there are some wealthy people influential people, sophisticated people, and yet the majority of the congregation is probably what we would call blue-collar, middle-class, lower-middle-class, and even poor. 
as you read this letter, um, you get the sense that a lot of the strife and the struggle and the conflict had to do with people competing with one another over social status and rank. Um, it's less explicitly racial in terms of conflicts. That's more the book of Galatians, although for sure the racial component is there. It's more a kind of a socioeconomic kind of class sort of differences. And if you remember, the book of uh, the city of Corinth is a little bit like New York City, or I compare it to New York City and LA and Las Vegas all put together. But a lot of times people, and this is very common, you know, you move from the small city or a rural place or just uh, someplace, and you, you go to New York City because you want to make it big or to, Al to Los Angeles, right? Because there's opportunity there. You can raise your social standing. You can find your dream job. You can make it big. And there's a lot of that, I think, with Corinth. So people are going there. Hardly anybody grew up in Corinth. Everybody moved to Corinth from some other place. And so the, the social atmosphere is highly competitive. And that gets translated into the church. And what Paul wants to remind them of is this. He says, by worldly standards, let me just remind you, you were not very impressive. You were not sophisticated. You're not cool and hip and wealthy and influential. All the things that you seem to be aspiring to be, you, that was not you before you became a Christian. And not only is that okay, <laughs> but it was by God's design. It was by God's design. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in his presence. See, Paul makes the observation about their actual low, low status, not to shame them, but to remind them of the radical truth that the real basis of their salvation is very simply God's election, God's call. That their social worth, their identity, what makes them valuable, what, cause, what makes them belong, is not their wisdom, their accomplishments, their influence in the world, not their moral superiority, just very simply God's gracious choosing of them as his own people. And this choosing had nothing to do with their natural merits or abilities. The source of their social worth and their dignity as Christians was God's grace towards them, pure and simple. It is, and it is for us the same, right? It is not our intelligence. It is not our influence. It is not our power, our accomplishments, our talents. It is not what the world sees valuable about us. It is not the family that we're born into. It is not our social class or our race. It is not a matter of our virtue or our personal goodness or our savviness. It is grace. It is grace. And it is grace alone. Christian identity is a grace-based identity. It is something that you cannot come to possess by any other means except by believing faith. And Paul here draws the contrast, the sharpest, between worldly wisdom and the foolishness of the cross. Worldly wisdom, and he says power and wisdom and noble status, which the the Corinthians seem to be still aspiring to. He sets all that in contrast to, and you see this in verse 30, because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom, wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. See, we want to build our identity on wisdom of the world and influence and power, 
and noble birth. And what Paul says is, no, that is not the basis of your identity. Your basis of your identity in Jesus Christ is his wisdom, his righteousness, his sanctification, his redemption. All the divisions in the church were merely reflective of the fact that the Corinthians were still judging one another and also judging themselves by worldly standards. Worldly standards by which the cross has, and the storyline of the cross, has made null and void. The cross, the wisdom of the world says that your identity is something that you have to earn for yourself, something that you have to achieve, or perhaps something you have to be lucky enough to be born with. But the foolishness of the cross says, no, your identity is a gift. It is a gift from God that you receive by faith. It is a grace-based identity. It comes as pure, pure gift from God in Christ. And the only way you grasp it is through faith. Through faith. Through believing faith. Friends, a grace-based identity is a radical identity. A grace-based identity is a radical identity. It is a revolutionary identity. And that's because the world simply cannot comprehend the world simply has no space for a grace-based identity. Because a grace-based identity suspends every judgment about your personal worth that is external to the person of Jesus Christ. A grace-based identity suspends all judgments about what makes you valuable and worthy to be loved or belong. It suspends all those judgments however deserved or undeserved, it, just, it suspends all of them outside of Jesus Christ. The world simply cannot operate this way. It would just simply fall apart. Only the church can operate this way, which is why the church is an utterly unique institution in the history of the world. What it means to belong to the church is that your belonging, your value, your worth, depends not on you, the good or the bad, but on Jesus Christ alone. It means that you belong to this church and you have a place and you are loved and you are valued no matter how many mistakes you've made, no matter how little you contribute, no matter how much you have made an utter mess of your life, you belong. You belong, just like the prodigal. And when you are in Christ. What you have is his righteousness, his sanctification, his redemption. This is the basis of a grace identity, a grace-based identity. It's all gift, it's all mercy, it's all grace. And it is the same for those of you who are elder brothers and sisters. And elder brothers and sisters are those people who have actually not screwed up their lives, but actually made a great deal for themselves. They've done the right thing. They've accomplished a lot. They're well-educated. They're very spiritual. They help very accomplished, successful people. You belong too, despite all of these things. We don't hold those against you. Your righteousness is not because of those things. You are valued not because of those things. When you become a Christian, Christ's righteousness and wisdom and sanctification does not supplement those things. It displaces them. And if it does not displace them in your life, 
If the righteousness of Christ does not display, displace your righteousness, your wisdom, your accomplishments, you will look down on others as morally inferior to yourself. There's just no way not to do it. I mean, it's, it's so instinctual. It is Christ for all of us. <laughs> the well-accomplished and the less well-accomplished, it is the same. The source of our identity is in Jesus Christ. It is his righteousness, his sanctification, and his redemption. Friends, the church is not merely a human institution. It is a, it is a human institution. It's run by human beings. But it is not merely a ins human institution. It is a divine institution. It finds its basis not in human wisdom and in ingenuity and human decisions, but it finds its basis in God's sovereign choice, God's sovereign purposes. Paul is very clear here. This is a foundational text. The basis of the church is his election, his choice. He chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose those things that are not, those things that are not powerful, not sexy, not cool, not sophisticated, in order to establish his kingdom. Why? So that no human being gets praise or boasting except for him. God chose us. God set us apart. And this doesn't depend on our willpower. It depends on God. And his choice has nothing to do whatsoever with our inherent moral worth, our superior spiritual sensitivities, quite the opposite. Quite the opposite. To under understand oneself as God's elect people is not to believe in your moral superiority, but rather your moral inferiority. To understand yourself as God's elect is to understand yourself to have become an object of mercy. That's what it means to be elect. You've become an object of mercy. First Peter says, once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. To be elect means that you have become a recipient of mercy. To be God's elect people means that he has singled you out as a special object of mercy and grace. It's not because he saw your potential. It's not because he's like, this is somebody I can work with. I can develop. He's got so much inborn talent and well-spoken. No. In the mystery of God, in the mystery of God's ways, he simply bestowed his grace on the undeserving. This is why we can't boast. We can't boast of ourselves and our wisdom and our accomplishments. Those things which structure community and belonging and the world simply do not work in the church. Now do you see do you see how the message of the cross demolishes all the status markers our world sets up? Do you see that? Do you see how the message of the cross, the fundamental truth of the cross, absolutely demolishes all the status markers that we use to get along and structure community and life in this world? And all those status markers that our world sets up are precisely the things that we're always fighting about. The Christian doctrine of grace rooted in the cross is the greatest social leveler in human history. It is the greatest social leveler. There's nothing more democratic. There's nothing more egalitarian. 
than the cross because it tells us that we all equally share the same exact status and fate as sinners before a holy God. There is this strange solidarity that the cross creates. And that solidarity is a solidarity as sinners that no matter our race, no matter our politics, no matter our gender, whatever it is, we all stand before the foot of the cross equally condemned, (laughs) equally sinful. Our solidarity together as sinners means that none of us can claim moral superiority over the other or moral inferiority. All of us stand equally unrighteous. All of us stand equally in need of God's salvation. And that's why God says he is impartial. Jew and Greek, doesn't matter to him. Black and white, rich and poor, all are the same. But this also means that we stand equally in Jesus Christ as God's beloved children with the same worth, despite our failures, despite our accomplishments. This is what Paul is getting at in this revolutionary verse from Galatians when he says, for as many as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is not male or female, you are all one in Christ. All the cultural, all the ethnic, all the social economic differences, all the moral boundary markers that separate the world in Jesus Christ have been relativized. Being in Christ does not mean that he cancels out our differences, not at all. But being in Christ does mean that we are all equally members, equally beloved children. It's not like the father loves one child more than another. We are beloved children of God, and we have all received with the same measure, the same righteousness, the same sanctification, and the same redemption. And all that is in Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be one in Jesus Christ. So, when it comes to us as a body, trying to get along, trying to be one, trying to resolve conflict, to live in peace, there's a lot of really important things that we should do. It's important for us to share our differences, our different stories, our different perspectives. It's important for us to negotiate um, different perspectives and needs and how we be a community together. It's important for us to share the ways we've hurt one another. It's important for us to see one another, to hear one another. These are all really good things that we need to do. But these things are still very horizontal. They're good wisdom for sustaining natural community. But in order to be a supernatural community that overcomes deep difference, that overcomes past harm and injuries, we have to turn our gaze away from one another, away from ourselves, and look at Christ crucified. See, most we must have a common object that is outside of ourselves, outside of ourselves that we're looking at and that can draw us together. When I do marriage counseling, premarital counseling, there's something I tell young couples, and you've probably heard me say this before, um, that the greatest gift you have to give one another as young married couples is your own love for God. 
Um, one of the fun things about people who are kind of getting married is um, they want to love one another more. They, they just, there's a sense of I just want to be able to love my, my, my spouse more, and I want you to help me to do that. Um, that that's, and it's, it's so neat because that's not always how we feel in marriage. We don't always feel God is like, I just want to be able to love my wife more after 20 years of marriage. Um, we're, I mean, there's just very few times in life when we're like that. We're like that with our children. I think that we're like that in various phases of our marriages. But the thing I tell them, which is so important, is this, is I know you want to love each other even more. You want to almost fuse. But the reality is this. The greatest gift that you can give one another is to love God more than you love one another. Uh, and I think this is also when it comes to dealing with, with difference and conflict in marriage or conflict in the body is that sometimes we focus in, we give all this energy and intention to the thing, and we play it over, and we talk about it, and we talk about it, and you know, there's really important things by that, but, and the same principle holds here, is that sometimes there's a point at which we have to look away of the difference, look away from the conflict, or look away from the love, and we have to look to Christ, and to Christ crucified. Brothers and sisters, the greatest gift that you can give to one another as believers in this body, as family members, as household members, as husbands and wives and spouses, is your own love for Christ crucified. Because the more the cross becomes the center of your life, the more you as a person are going to be able to surrender all of your life before the Lord. The more expansive you will be, the more humble you will be, the more merciful you will be, the more forgiving you will be. Why? Because you have received grace. You have received mercy. You have received forgiveness. And it helps you to extend that to others. And the more we do this, the more we, we push into the cross and push into Jesus Christ, the more God begins to reshape us and change us and pull all the strands of our various stories and narratives together into the one big story, which is Christ crucified. And when you do this, and you find yourself loving people that you normally, under normal conditions, would not be able to love. And what's happening there is not simply you in your natural capacity loving, but it is Jesus Christ loving through you. It's Jesus loving through us. None of us knows how to love as well as Jesus loves. But when we find ourselves in him, he loves the world through us. Amen. Father, we, we need um, your love. We need your cross. We bring our, our hearts and our lives before the foot of your cross, and we, we surrender. I pray, Lord, that, uh, that whatever loves, whatever struggles, whatever conflicts that we might be presenting themselves to us, that, that uh, the cross would be uh, bigger that we would bring ourselves before that cross and to see ourselves as we truly are, as objects of grace and mercy, and that that, that identity would, would filter into all parts of our lives, our thinking, our acting. We give you thanks, Lord, for your great love and mercy to us as your people. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.